I am currently teaching uh, an adult Sunday school class on the will of God and how you make decisions. In fact, they're meeting together as we speak. Just last Sunday, we covered the notion of the wisdom necessary to make good decisions. And one of the things we talked about was sources that we can get wisdom from, obviously from the scripture, through prayer, etc. But one of those was we can seek counsel from persons who have a track record of wisdom. So consequently, in the days that followed last Sunday, as I was trying to determine uh, what I would preach on today, I, I was having difficulty figuring it out. I was mulling things over, and then I, you know, the light came on, and I said, you know, maybe I should follow my own advice. So I consulted with four wise persons, my four grandkids, <laughs> Caleb, Aaron, Natalie, and Clara Black. I gave them the things I was considering. I gave them three options, explained what they were, and then said, okay, tell Papa what you think I ought to do. And they didn't consult with one another, but they all unanimously picked the same subject. They said, Papa, you should, uh, you should preach on the incredible confession of Job found at the end of the book in chapter 42. Well, you know, as I took that input and that information, I came to the conclusion that it's impossible for me to go against the wisdom of my grandkids. <laughs> so, we're here today to talk about Job 42, verses 1 through 6. As you're finding that in your Bibles, I think it would be a good idea if we would give a little synopsis of what the book of Job is all about, so we can kind of be oriented and see what's transpired up until the end. You may be familiar with the opening couple of chapters. There we have a description of God and Satan having a conversation. And the conversation went something like this. God said, Satan, as you've gone around the created order in this world, uh, have you run into Job? Job is my servant. He is blameless, he is upright, he shuns evil. And he fears me. Well, Satan said, big deal. You're protecting him. Give me a shot at him and he'll change his tune. He will, he will reject you, ignore you, not fear you, etc. God said, okay, have at it. You can do whatever you want to Job, except you've got to spare his life. So the result was, right, he lost his whole family. He lost everything he had, and that was pretty significant and he lost his own health. The bulk of the book, however, deals with what transpires following that occurrence. Namely, some friends of Job's, quote unquote friends of Job's, uh, showed up and decided that they would try to encourage him and offer him good counsel, maybe be able to get him out of this uh, funk that he was in as he was sitting on the ash heap of the, uh, ash he ash heap of the city dump, and uh, they can maybe help him work his way out of that. Unfortunately, they came with a preconceived notion. It was very common. Job probably also believed it, and the notion went like this. God prospers the righteous and punishes the unrighteous. That's the way God operates. So Job 
you are suffering. Therefore, there must be some sin that you've committed that's caused, Joe, caused God to punish you. In other words, there was always this connection. They interpreted providence. They said, if this, if this is happening, it must be because, because of sin. There was this, there was this uh, always unbreakable connection between sin in your life, and that's the reason that you're suffering. So they pounded away at it day after day after day. Sometimes they came there and just sat and didn't say a thing. But day after day after day, that's what they said. And Job responded the same day after day. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. You're wrong. I've not committed any sins. And maybe he described further what his life was like. I, we're not told. But finally, Job became so frustrated with what was going on that he shook his fist in the face of God himself and bitterly vented at God for his circumstances and said to God, this is unfair, this is not just, I don't deserve this, what are you doing? And on and on, it was really, really, really ugly that this man who was called blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil, this man was venting at God. Hmm. You know what? He said one other thing. He said, give me a chance at God. Just let me have a one-on-one -on -one with God and I will set him straight and show him why he should be treating me differently. Well, be careful what you ask for. God granted him that interview. In fact, twice he granted him an interview. In the first interview, you can almost see it. Uh, it didn't happen this way, but allow me a little bit of liberty. God walks in the room. There's Job. He sits down, and instead of letting Job pose questions, God didn't allow any questions, and if there were some questions that blurted out of Job's mouth, he refused to answer them. He didn't even address why you were suffering. He didn't even address the accusations that they were making. He, he gave no answers to any of Job's questions. It didn't resolve anything. What did God do? He asked the questions. And it was a stunning tutorial that Job witnessed. God said, okay, Job, let me ask you some questions. Where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when I got out the measuring stick to set everything out? Where were you when the clouds poured forth the rain and when the snow, snowing now, came down? Where were you when all this happened? He took him on an excursion of the whole creation, and at every point he said, here's what I have done, what have you done? Here's what I've done, where were you? Then he paused. Okay, Job, it's your turn. What did Job say? Job said two things. I am small. A huge understatement. I am small. And God, I don't think I'll say anything more. Hmm. What's God now do? God being God could see his motives, could see his heart, could see what really was going on. And God said to Jonah, uh, Jonah, to jo uh, Job, what's his name? Job. Said to Job, if you'll allow me, something like this. These are just empty words that you're saying, Job. I know that that's not really the truth. You still don't get it. 
So sit down, shut up, I have more to say. And then God embarked on an extensive expose of Job's character, of Job's true mindset. He was self-centered. He was only interested in himself. He was not interested in God, and on and on and on. He went. It was brutal. He came to the end again. He paused. What does Job say now? Well, that's what chapter 42 Verses 1 through 6 is all about. Here's how Job answered God in the second of the two interviews that he had with God. So follow as I read. I'll be reading from the New American Standard updated version this morning. Verses 1 through 6 of Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak and I will ask you and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I want to share four learnings from this passage of Scripture. But before we do, may I pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for historical persons like Job who give to us models for how not to act and then how to act. We ask now that as we look at your word, the Spirit of God might instruct us so that we might glean learnings for our own lives and we might rejoice over your majestic character. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Here's the first learning. The supreme rule of God in the universe is a massive truth that has no limits or conditions. This is verse 2. No limits or conditions. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, I am a fan of children's theology. I don't mean theology books written for children. I mean theological statements that little kids make. It's really kind of neat. Uh, I I just love it. Some of them are apocryphal. Some of them are very real. But uh, when I run into them, I just have a heyday with it. Uh, Any of you remember Art Linkletter? Okay, I'll forget that. (laughs) Afterwards, you can ask me who Art Linkletter was, but anyway. um, It's a long time ago, back in the 50s. I ran across one story of a little girl whose name was Susie. I I believe this one was an actual story, six years old. During her bedtime prayers, Susie concluded her prayer like this. Dear God, before I finish, I want you to take care of mommy, to take care of daddy, to take care of my sister and my brother. And please, God, take care of yourself. Because if you don't, we're all sunk. (laughs) Susie got it. She really got it. She knew that everyone was totally and absolutely, utterly dependent upon God. 
her God was big. In her small way, her God was huge. Now, as I thought about that, I realized that unlike Susie, Job had tried to dictate terms to God. But now, he has come face to face with the reality that God is both omnipotent, that is, all-powerful, and sovereign, that is, he is, he answers to nobody. He alone can triumph over evil. He alone was the answer that Job needed. His character, his majestic and, and mysterious character. He could say the word and things would be solved. That was God and Job began to have a picture of God and understood that God was this way. However, it is wise to note that God determined when and how to accomplish his counsel. He was not going to necessarily jerk and jump at the behest of mere men. And this is really all Job needed to know. There was no other essential truths. He just needed to know that his God was a mysterious, majestic God who had all power and who could do whatever he wanted and never had to give a reason for what he did to anybody. Have you ever done that with God? Why are you doing this, God? No, you don't say it like that, but you know. Why, 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 why? You know what? God has every right to say to you, you know what? None of your business. Sit down, shut up. He really does. This is our God. And Job began to have a picture of this God. It was, a, it was an amazing phenomenon that's taken place as he made this change. Cast your eye on the word purpose in verse 2. That's a word that refers to God's specific detailed plans, okay? In fact, the term is used to describe the, the evil schemes of evil men. Same word. It's used that way in the scripture. So you are aware that God has a comprehensive universal plan for the entirety of the universe. Nothing is left out. Everything is included, including Every day of your life and my life and Job's life, every minute detail occurs precisely as God had planned. This is what Jonah began to understand. This became the thing that would change Jonah's whole perspective and his whole life. So guess what? Jonah verbalizes this to God. That's what verse 2 is all about. He would be the first of many throughout history who came to this giant truth. Some of them came the hard way. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember his story. He got full of himself and God sent him out in a pasture land and let him graze like animals and he became pretty insane. Slobbered all over himself. But during that whole thing, guess what? Daniel chapter 4 says this. Here's, here's how... Nebuchadnezzar finally saw it. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one could do all oh, they do, but it doesn't do them any good. No one. 
Or then there's the preacher in Ecclesiastes. I know that everything does, that God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that man should fear him. I love Isaiah's statement. He came to the same conclusion. The Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? You know what the expected answer there is. And as, his, as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? On and on and on. These persons of biblical history came to the same conclusion that, God, that Job had previously come to earlier on. Even Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. So what was going on here? Job came to the conclusion that the God whom he worshipped was a giant big God who was powerful enough to do whatever he wanted and was not answerable to anyone for what he did and when he did it and how he did it. He came to that truth. But that wasn't the most important thing. Job also began to see a connection between this truth and his life. He began to see that this giant truth of God meant something about how he lived his life, how he viewed his life, including his days on the ash heap of the city dump and his loss of his family, his loss of his possessions, his loss of health. That's what is happening here. Job is connecting rich, deep theological truth to his life. Now that theme will come up again as we move along. Second learning is this. Job's tardiness in fully admitting his grievous error demonstrates the obstinate heart of man as well as the merciful patience of God. Cast your eyes on verse 3. The beginning of the verse, uh, Job recalls and rephrases the question God asked him in his first interview. Who is he that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? If you happen to have a New International Version with you, it suggests by adding the words you asked at the beginning. So what's Job doing? He is quoting God. So verse 3, the first part of it says, God, you ask this question. Now, the question back in chapter 38 is, who is he that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Okay. Now, here's Job. And God is saying that to him. How does Job answer? Well, he says that back then, he refused to admit it. It wasn't me, God. I wouldn't think of doing that, darkening, obscuring your purposes. They are light, but I call them darkness. No, no, God, how could you think that of me? But then he now says meekly, yet in plain sight, you can almost see him. It's in the corner, there's God having all this, and he raises his hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Lord. It was me. I am the one who had the audacity and the arrogancy to darken your counsel. But it gets worse. Job now, as he looks back on that original question, rephrases it. And he says, not that he darkened it, 
But he says, I have hid it. I have concealed it. Wow, this isn't pretty. It's one thing to obscure it, but it's another thing to pretend like and attempt to make it disappear out of sight. And Job comes to realize that that's what he had done. Furthermore, he expands his culpability. Now, I don't know whether this was intentional on Job's part whether he, or unintentional, but nonetheless, he admits to doing these kinds of things, concealing God's purposes from sight. But then in the second part of the verse, he says, look, I was really, really, really off base. He didn't understand, and he didn't know. He really had no understanding of these great truths about God and how he, how he works in this world. And he didn't know them. Simply put, he was in over his head. These were truths that were too great for him to grasp. Now, it's one thing to misunderstand. It's one thing to not know. But it's another thing to open your yap. And that's what Job did. He had no clue what was going on with God. He had no idea why God was doing what he was doing. In fact, his view was exactly the opposite of the truth. But what did he do? He acted like he knew. Arrogantly, he made statements which were totally off base. Hmm. It gets bad. Job is digging himself more and more and more of a hole. Yes, he stupidly spoke when he shouldn't have spoken. Now, here's the deal. Job finally comes to this conclusion. There's a progression of the word no in chapters 38 through 42. And the conclusion, after God says, look, Job, tell me what you know. The word is answer in the translation, but tell me what you know. I'll ask a question. Tell me what you know. Well, Job didn't have much to answer. But finally, Job says this. He acknowledges, look, here's what I now know, and here's what I didn't know. And he had moved from what he didn't know to what he now knows. In other words, what was true then that he should have known, he now knows. Something had happened. Here's the deal. When we encounter truths that are too wonderful for us, the way it's translated there, it might be best to keep our opinions to ourselves. I mean, some things are above our pay grade. So when you encounter those kinds of things, rather than open up your mouth and run off about things that you don't know, perhaps it's a good idea just to keep your opinion to yourself, especially when the issue is how God runs the universe and how he implements his plan in your life. It would be a good idea to just zip it. Okay, too wonderful. I think we can make some applications to our own lives. I'm reminded of a Peanuts cartoon. I used to read the newspaper. I don't much anymore. But I read the sports page. I read the editorial page. And I read the comics. Not in that order. I read the sports page first, then the comics, and the editorial page. Pretty soon I stopped reading the editorial pages, and pretty soon I, I didn't read, I don't take a newspaper any longer. But I love the comics, and I loved Peanuts. 
some of you still know who Peanuts are. Uh, Charles Schultz is dead, but they still publish his, his uh, cartoons, his comics. So one in particular caught my attention as I was working through this. Lucy and Charlie Brown were having a conversation about deck chairs on ships, cruise ships, you know. Uh, and Lucy said, well, deck chairs are like life, or life is like deck chairs. Some people put the deck chair at the bow of the ship so they can see where they're going. Others put their deck chair at the aft of the ship so they can see where they've been. Others put it midships so they can see where they are. <laughs> Charlie Brown said, Lucy, I can't even get my deck chair unfolded. I have to confess that I can identify with the blockhead, good old Charlie Brown. I am one myself. But it does introduce a question, two questions as a matter of fact. Why did it take Job so long to get it? I mean, he moved from chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, where he said, God takes and, I mean, God gives and God takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He moved from there to where he was. What happened? How did this take so long for him to come back to the wonderful truth of the mysterious and majestic God? And then secondly, why did God put up with it anyway? Really? That's probably the bigger question. What's going on with God? Why is he putting up with this kind of nonsense? I mean, shaking the fist in the face of God, accusing him of unjust and unfair conduct? Well, I, I have the answer to those two questions. I don't know. That's what I answer. I don't really know. But here's what I do know. Though I don't have satisfactory answers. Oh, you can guess about some of those things. And, most people have. But at the end of the day, I know two things. Number one, I know that Job did finally confess that he didn't know and he was out of order. He finally got it and realized the connection between who God was and his life. Or to say it this way, he got his deck chair unfolded. He finally did. Secondly, as I think about God, has a little phrase that I've come up with. God waited. Why, why didn't God put up with it? I don't know, but here's what I do know. God waited. That's far more important than it took Job so long. I repeat, God waited. Don't you like the sound of that? It gives us hope and encouragement. That leads to the third didactic for us today. Thus, like Job, it's possible to be a person of faith, yet not live out faith fully in our lives. Verses 4 through 5. In verse 4, Job recalls that God had challenged him to listen during his earlier conversation with him and then reply. In verse 5, Job says that then he did hear God with his ear. Now, what he's really saying is, I heard God on a surface level only. I just heard with my ears. I heard what he said. I heard the words. Uh, and that's what Job is saying. In verse 5, the second part, he says that finally the, life came, the light came out. Now, he says, I see 
with my eye. With my eye, I see you, God. Finally, it was not enough just to be on the surface. He finally, internally, with the eye of his heart, so to speak, he began to really see it. He hadn't seen things before. Can we explain this? How in the world did this happen? Uh, again, probably not, but we can make some guesses. I lean toward marking this down to the mysterious ministry of God himself. I know this is the Old Testament, but I think probably this is the ministry of the Spirit of God himself. You don't know how, but the light comes on. You can't explain it. It's kind of like 1 Corinthians 2, 13, and 14. You can't explain why you can understand the scripture. Well, it's the ministry of the Spirit of God. However, I have an observation. Up to this point, Job's perception of God was driven by his tradition. What everyone around him believed, what his friends believed, what Job happened to believe, and that was that God prospers the, God, the, the godly and punishes the ungodly. He was driven by that. But now he had an encounter with God, a face-to-face -face conversation with God, and God peppered him with questions, and it was stunning. And now, because of this encounter with God, Job came to some amazing, different conclusions about God as a result of his encounter with God. Now, we need to be careful with this. Job's encounter with God was a verbal tutorial by God. I don't think we have those today. But you know what we have? We have a written tutorial. That's this book. And like 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, whenever we as believers have an encounter with the written word of God, which is an encounter with God himself, things happen. Things happen by an encounter with this word. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. That leads us to the fourth learning. Job's ultimate response to his private tutorial with God shows us that when we personally encounter God, we will be profoundly transformed. Circle the word therefore at verse 6. So here's what's going on. Job says, now that I see, I must do something. It wasn't just this wonderful new bit of Knowledge and information, these theological truths, these huge truths. I mean, the huge truth of the mystery and majesty of God, of the power of God, of the sovereignty of God, of the goodness of God. It wasn't just all of these truths. Wow, let's put them on the shelf. Let's examine them. It's like examining our navel. No, that's not what's all going on. Job says, now that I see I did something, there is a connection between what he came to believe and how he lived. And that, by, by the way, my friends, is a huge principle that should drive us. Now that we know God, now that we see God's truth, it should change the way we live. Theological, it was a theological exercise, yes, but it was much, much more than that. It was a revolutionary exercise. It should change the way we think, the way we live, our view of God, our view of ourselves, our view of creation. This is a huge principle. So here's what Job did. Two things. I retract and I repent. 
I retract and I repent. The idea of retracting is that he despises or now rejects. But you'll notice there's no object. Now, you may have an ESV or a King James or an NIV, and they suggest an object, but it's supplied. It's the object myself. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think the object of his retraction was himself. It wasn't a matter that he despised himself. I think the focus is on what he said. In other words, Job now repudiates his bitter complaints, his prideful boasts, and his wrong-headed views that he had expressed previously. Then he also says, I repent. It's not the normal word for repent. It's a word that doesn't mean change or turn. It's a word that is filled with emotional flavor, remorse, or sorrow. The root idea is to take a deep breath, to breathe deeply. And it's a picture of Job as he's mulling over what had happened, as he's mulling over where he was. He was deeply grieved. And I think that this too refers to what Job said and what he did. He is not repenting of some sin that he committed. He is not acknowledging that his counselors were right. But he did have much to regret. Again, I ask the question, what is he repenting of? Could it be something as simple as his view of God? He was deeply grieved that he saw God as so small. To me, this is the key. Things dramatically changed when he had an encounter with the awesome grandeur of God. And he says to himself, so to speak, how could I have missed it? I mean, there it was, all along. How could I possibly have missed it? He is suggesting that if he only would have seen the bigness of God earlier, he would never have questioned the goodness of God. If he'd only seen the bigness of God sooner, he would not have bitterly complained about his circumstances. So it was the then and the now. He now sees God for who he is, and his life is radically changed. It's an amazing picture of the truth that theology has impact in life. But there's another interesting thought. The word that's translated repent can mean something else. It can mean console or comfort. So if that's maybe a hint of what the word is getting at, I'm not sure that it is. There's a lot of debate about it. Job is now saying that after his meeting with God, he no longer sees God as an unjust bully. He sees him as the good and compassionate God who loves him. Thus, he is consoled by his new insights and his new views of God. And even though he is still on the ash heap, he is still suffering, he's still scraping the swords, his Family is still dead. He has no possessions. He's lost everything. Even though that's the case, he now can rejoice because he is experiencing the good hand of the providence of God that controls every detail of his life. There are no accidents as far as Job was concerned. He is rejoicing in God. Whatever, never forget this. I cannot exit God's presence the same as when I entered.
something happens when we immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Something happens. Well, you might say, so what? What is this all about? I want to give you seven takeaways that you can take with you. You may not like them all, may not agree with them all, and that's fine. You might want to add others, and I would encourage you to do that. But here they are, some things to walk out the door with. You will encounter trouble in life. And not the other guy sitting next to you, but you. You will encounter trouble in life. Secondly, the God of the Bible is big. How about yours? Third, when you can't figure it out, hold on to God. Never doubt in darkness what you were convinced of in light. Four, is your loyalty to God tied to external circumstances? If so, red alert, red alert. Five, persons of great faith can crack under the stresses of life. It does happen. You probably have examples of it happening. Six, do you deserve health? Do you deserve life? Do you deserve wealth? Think very carefully as you consider that question. And then seven, God is intimately aware of every detail of your life. Why? Because he preordained every detail of your life. Every last detail. So, relax. Smile. This is your God. I'd like to close our time together by using a prayer written by David. You don't have to turn to it in your Bible, but it's found in Psalm 77 as our closing prayer. It reads like it could have been penned by Job. Pray with me. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on all your deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Amen and amen. Go in peace.